for hours, as you're prone to do at grandparents' houses. We finally tromped inside, dripping with sweat and exhausted, to enjoy some air conditioner and a nice, refreshing, cold drink. We opened up the fridge, and there I saw it. This frosted, delicious cup of apple juice. It was just waiting for me. I grabbed it, and I took a giant gulp. Friends, that was not apple juice. I had apparently just taken a giant swig of my grandfather's beer. I quickly ran to the kitchen sink, and I spit out as much of it as I was able to. I will never forget the way that disappointment tasted that day. What I thought I was getting was not even close to what I actually got. Well, have you ever been disappointed by your expectations? Maybe someone didn't turn out to be who you thought they were. Maybe that hotel that you booked online that looked so dreamy turned out to have cockroaches. John Maxwell famously said that disappointment is the gap that exists between expectation and reality. That's what's happening in our passage this morning. So let's dig in and see how it plays out. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 19, starting at verse 29, if you want to follow along. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where upon entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road too. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd with them, they said this, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, in this passage, we we find what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is entering Jerusalem in Holy Week. It would prove to be his last week here on earth. We see the reaction of the people, cries of Hosanna, cheers of celebration, acts of honor and worship. And we, having the benefit of hindsight, know that these people less than a week later would be chanting at Jesus, but their chants would sound very different. They would be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. So what changed in that time? How did they get from a place of radical worship to radical hatred? It was the gap between expectation and reality. The Jews had developed a lot of expectations, you see, for what their promised Messiah would look like. 
They believed that a Messiah would come to save them, not from their sins, but from the sins of their oppressors. The land that they were living in had come under Roman rule, and many Jews expected the Messiah to be a military figure. He would kick the Romans out so that they could again rule over the land that God had promised them so many years ago. Other Jews were expecting a powerful prophet like Moses or Isaiah. Ultimately, the Jewish people wanted to return to their glory days. None of us ever experienced that, do we? They wanted it to be what it was like during the rules of David and Solomon The peace, the prosperity, and the favor of God, those were the things that they were looking for. Their expectations were of grandeur, political power, and a radical overthrow of their oppressors. The scene that they got was pretty much the opposite of that. Let's just address the elephant in the room here. This King Jesus, he not only needed to borrow an animal for his triumphant entry, but rather than choosing a war horse like most leaders would, he chose a donkey colt. It's bizarre. John Calvin explains it this way. Jesus had two things to do at the same time. He had to exhibit some proof of his kingdom and... He had to show that it does not resemble earthly kingdoms. The proof that Calvin is referring to is one of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had to fulfill. It's found in Zechariah 9.9 and it reads, Rejoice greatly. Does that sound familiar? Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. It doesn't feel so triumphant, though, does it? And yet God always seems to work this way. The way up with him is down. Not only is the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem shocking, but where he chooses to enter it from is also shocking. Did you notice it when I read the passage? It said, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. The mount that is called Olivet. In other words, the Mount of Olives. Do you remember where else we'll see the Mount of Olives during this Holy Week? We find it in chapter 22 of this same book. And he, being Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Of all the ways that King Jesus, Lord of the universe, could have chosen to enter Jerusalem, he chose to do it on a young donkey with a makeshift saddle of his disciples' old clothes from the place that he would later sweat drops of blood and later be betrayed by a close friend. All this while being celebrated by a bunch of commoners who would later turn on him. It's baffling. It's not how I would do it. And it's not quite the traditional coronation ceremony 
that you would plan. As you probably know, Queen Elizabeth of England died this past year. The country is now eagerly planning a coronation ceremony for their new king, King Charles. That's going to happen in May of this year. But I, I wanted to take a look. Can you all hear me okay? I wanted to take a look at uh, the last coronation ceremony that we saw, which was Elizabeth's. So this happened about turn of the cent- or about mid-century. And uh, I'm going to play a video for you so we can see what it looked like. Here come the yeomen of the guard. <coughs> and now the queen's watermen. <coughs> and here's the sovereign's escort of household cavalry preceding the coronation coach itself. Yet for all the fluttering banners, the bright uniforms, the intoxication of martial music and the roar of surging multitudes, we're not just witnessing a wonderful show. This is an event of deep spiritual significance to both the queen and her peoples. Did you see that carriage? Good night. How much do you think that thing cost? Very, very different, right? But here's the real difference. When your kingship is eternal, when all authority on heaven and earth is given to you by the creator of the universe, when even the rocks and the trees recognize and bow to your authority, You don't need the pomp and circumstance. Jesus was absolutely secure in who he was and the authority that had been given him from God. He could enter his reign quietly, meekly, humbly, because it was a reign that was given by God, not man. And it was a reign with no end. Jesus was setting up a different kind of kingdom with a very different kind of king. This kind of kingdom did not have an earthly agenda, but rather a heavenly one. Sure, Jesus could have rid the Jewish people of all the temporary problems from a seat of earthly power. Or he could rid them of all their eternal problems from a wooden cross. God has the long view, and so should we. Now, if you're like me, I was always curious, always a question asker. I actually drove my mom crazy with it. But if you're like me, you might be wondering about two things at this point of the story. One, did Jesus instruct his disciples to steal this colt? And two, what does it mean that the Lord has need of it? Well, we'll start with the second question first. Why would Jesus have need of this colt? After all, isn't God autonomous? Meaning, isn't it true that he doesn't need anything from us? Well, yes, that is true. This attribute of God is called his aseity. It means, as D.A. Carson wrote, that God is so independent that he does not have need of us. 
You can find this attribute of God clearly laid out in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 25. We're told that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now, this might seem like a wee tangent. I'm taking you on, but it's important, so stick with me. Do you want to worship and serve a God who is dependent on you? Who is forced to wait on you? Whose cosmic will and plan are held up in some way by your tardiness or lack of obedience or by you wanting to do things your own way? I certainly do not. Friends, God does not depend on us, but he delights to include us in his unfolding work in the world. Jesus proves his divinity in this encounter, both in knowing the location of the cult and in bending the heart of its owner to want to make it available for Jesus's use. There was no doubt that this experience had to strengthen the faith of his his disciples for what lay ahead. And Jesus knew that this extra measure of faith would be necessary for them in the coming days. While Jesus didn't need the help of others, he still delighted to involve his disciples, even his broader followers in this triumphal entry. He gave them jobs, he bestowed his authority on them, and he gladly accepted their meager offering of old cloaks to make a seat of sorts on the cult. He received their shouts of praise and worship. Did you catch that it was the disciples who led this impromptu worship service? We see it in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God. It was then that the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for allowing his disciples to worship him and even to call him king. His response was priceless. If these were silent, the stones would cry out. Jesus, it's as if he's taking them by the shoulders and shaking them and saying, don't you get it yet? Don't you see who I am? But their pride and their envy kept them from joining the celebration that day. And I am left to wonder what good and beautiful things have I withheld from myself because they didn't look the way that I thought they ought to. So I'll ask you again, what do you really want from God? We transition here from a near party to a near funeral, from celebration to weeping. Read with me, starting in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade on you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, I looked it up because I was curious. I already admitted that to you. I'm an eternally curious person. How many times do we see Jesus weeping in the Bible? Only three. 
The first is when he finds out that his dear friend Lazarus had died. The second is the passage that we just read. And the third is when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Now, the other two are pretty monumental, right? So that must mean that this one is too. This moment was filled with deep anguish for Jesus. We're told that it happened as he was getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Now, there are many mentions of Jerusalem throughout the scriptures, and we don't have time to look at them all. But scripture talks about Jerusalem both descriptively and prophetically. Here is just a few that I've pulled out for us. Ezekiel 5.5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set at the center of the nations. Galatians 4.26. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. 2 Kings 19.34. I will defend this city and save it. Luke 2.22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, being Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that Jerusalem is the birthplace of the church. God loves Jerusalem. He has loved it for eternity past, and he will love it for eternity future. And because he's a member of the Trinity, Jesus loves Jerusalem too. The scriptures aren't clear about the reason for Jesus' tears. But I imagine that it has to have something to do with these prophecies of death and destruction that he is speaking over them. It broke his heart to warn them of what was coming. And yet it was the only loving thing to do. To know that danger is imminent and to not warn your loved ones, that is not just loveless, but cruel. Jesus' words were not harsh. They were loving. He was telling the Jews that the only way to true peace is through him. And he was willing to lay down his own life to secure that peace for them. Jesus, again, takes the long view. He's not talking about momentary earthly peace. He's talking about God's promised eternal shalom that would fill every aspect of their lives and it would never have an expiration date. That kind of peace is not dependent on our headlines. It's dependent on the rock of ages who never changes. Tabiti Anyabwili asks this provocative question. Have you ever thought about how many of our problems come from a failure to recognize God's presence with us? Jesus offers us peace, both within ourselves, peace with others, and peace with God. So friends, what do you really want from God? Do you want a quick fix? Do you just want your party to be in the White House so you can pursue your own political agenda? 
Do you just want to get a divorce so that the challenges of marriage can be in your rearview mirror? Do you just want to win the lottery so you don't have to worry about bills or overdrawing your account? None of those are small things. They matter to God. But politics, love, sex, money, fame, success, none of these can offer us true and lasting peace. Only Jesus can do that. One time, many years after the fact, someone asked me if I was scared before I moved to China by myself. I have to confess their question surprised me. My immediate reply was, but I wasn't going by myself. See, the God that I had known since I was a child, he was with me every step of the way. In the midst of much unfamiliar, so much hard, so much new, I had the very presence of God with me in the form of the Holy Spirit. He never left me. He never abandoned me, never failed me, never ignored me. He was never insufficient for me. I had perfect peace because I had my perfect Savior right beside me. I was quite literally filled with peace. The kind of peace that Jesus is pleading with Israel now. The Apostle Paul explains this true and lasting peace this way. I'm reading from the message. By entering through faith into what God had always wanted to do for us, to set us right with him and make us fit for him, we have it all together with God because of our master Jesus. And that's not all. We'll throw open our doors, the doors of God, to discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. That's a coronation ceremony. So how are you going to respond to Jesus today? Will you submit your life to him, letting him rule as the true and perfect king? He wants to give you his peace, real, lasting, deep peace. Won't you let him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. How you long for us to know you. How you long for us to experience your deep abiding peace. I pray that if there are any in this room this morning who don't yet know that kind of peace, that they will give up control today. That they will choose to crown you as their true and eternal king. That they will allow you to bring your rule of peace into their hearts. Father, I pray that you would be glorified. Jesus, I pray that you would be made manifest in us. We pray it in your name. Amen.